This is Ion Health, delving into your overall well-being. With MedLab Middle East. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Great to have you with us on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer and we have our Eye on Health once again this week in association with MedLab Middle East. We're discussing the future of laboratories, a particularly interesting time to discuss this. And we've got some of the best brains around to share what's been happening behind the scenes historically, but also in the last couple of years and indeed weeks. Our first guest is Dr. Palat Manon, who's the head of clinical department in the clinical lab at Faki University Hospital. He has 40 years of experience as a physician and a researcher. Huge thanks for sparing the time to talk to us today because I know it's an incredibly busy time for an incredibly busy industry. You um, are HSCD Clinical Lab at Fakir University. Um, Dr. Palat, can you take us back a little bit, perhaps, to the beginning of the pandemic? So two years ago, can you remember the first time you heard the phrase COVID-19? I'm a microbiologist and a molecular biologist. So, uh, you know, outbreaks of pandemics are relatively rare occasions in human history. It happens probably every 30, 40, 50 years. We recently had this, a couple of decades back, we had the SARS uh, outbreak. And uh, then COVID came along. It was uh, incredibly secretive initially. We didn't want to talk too much about it. And suddenly when we as clinicians recognize globally the seriousness of illness, then suddenly, you know, there was a lot of collaboration globally. The best example I can give you is uh, within about a few weeks of the disease being uh, described, we were able to know the complete genome of the virus. Yeah? Uh, CDC published online the PCR primers and probes, which enabled many, many companies to set up their own PCRs mm-hmm. and quickly manufacture it and marketed across the globe. So uh, there is, and in this, the lab plays a very important part. So that's the reason why I kind of highlighted this. It's um, it's interesting you mentioned PCR, obviously we're, it's very, very busy time at the moment in terms of testing turnaround times here in Dubai, certainly queues as well. We've had lots of messages to Dubai, people telling us where they're going for a quick turnaround, others waiting, you know, up to 48 hours for a, a 12 hour test. and. I think, you know, I'd never heard the term PCR two years ago. What have those tests been used for historically? Have you used them in your 40-year career? Yes. Um, uh, as I told you, I'm a molecular biologist. I started using PCR almost uh, 25 years back. And we used to use it for infectious disease diagnostics. Uh, you know, I uh, used to head the Department of Molecular Biology in my alma mater. And uh, there we had set up the first PCR lab probably in, the, in India those days, you know, very few PCR, PCR labs existed. And uh, we had to import everything, so, you know, the machines, the chemicals. Uh, today, uh, you know, it is available pretty much globally. So PCR is, but PCR has been relatively hidden from the public. Mm-hmm. Nobody really knew what PCR was. Only people like me who lived in academic citadels could really, you know, describe the the joys of or sorrows of trying to get a PCR test. <laughs> I think we can all relate. I think we've all come away from a test and thought that was a good one. Um, I didn't cry or my goodness, my brain has just been well and truly, you know, beyond tickled. And we've got this whole new vocabulary now, this new lexicon when it comes to the pandemic. And as I said, these are words you'll, you'll be using 
in your you know for decades but it's something that we're just becoming familiar with and now we've got a real appetite to learn more we want to learn more about what other techniques are available what are other countries doing what's been successful historically before we talk about the current situation and perhaps what we can expect from the future different tests and techniques are you able to explain a little bit about your day-to-day job Pilat? can you explain what what that entails these days my job is pretty hectic in the sense that uh, we get almost we get a fairly large number of PCR tests which pass through our hospital. Uh, there is uh, interestingly the most important thing is most of the patients uh, most of the cases are asymptomatic so that's a good thing but at the same time you're worried is this a false positive is this a false negative. On the other side we get people with common cough common cold and they are worried that they are they've got COVID. So again, there you have the other worry: is this a false negative? Mm-hmm. So, uh, f- from a clinician's viewpoint, this is a big juggle, and uh, uh, I, I presume it's just a matter of time before we start doing something called multi- multiplex PCRs, where the PCR can clearly indicate to you whether you got COVID or whether you got an influenza. So currently, Ooh. you have two different tests which do that. Well, it's interesting you should mention that because we were, we've just heard this week about the first case of fluorona, which, as you say, is a a co-infection. It was being detected in Israel. One patient who I believe is pregnant and unvaccinated, testing positive both influenza and COVID nineteen. Do you expect more to be on the horizon? Uh, see, uh, human beings have changed a lot in the last two years. We have been doing a lot of. Uh, you know, masking, hand hygiene, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, if you realize, last year there was hardly any influenza or rhinoviral infection. Uh, I think in the process, the body really forgot uh, what an influenza virus or a rhinovirus looks like. And this year, we are seeing a resurgence of these two infections. So, it is only but natural that you know, sometimes. Uh, especially in pandemic situations, multiple viruses can infect the body simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So it will be very rare. So I don't expect this a pandemic or an epidemic. But yes, yes, that's uh, cross your fingers. Can... But more importantly, uh, you know, it is uh, it occasional cases will happen. Clinicians have to watch out, and especially in people who are uh, immunocompromised or uh, who have uh, other. Uh, clinical conditions which are happening at the same time one has to be very very careful and monitor so well, people do go out and of course get your COVID-19 vaccinations and your boosters but also your flu vaccines too because as yes, I said there was yes. a record low number of flu cases last season and this season it seems to be seems to be trending upwards unfortunately um, would you mind coming back to the false positives and false negatives because I have done zero medical training. You have got 40 years of experience, but I'd love you to explain in kind of layman's terms why a test might display those results. What happens in the body or in the lab that might give a false result? See, the first important thing to recognize is uh, there is a virus may be present in your nose, but you may not really be infected. So that's the first thing. Correct. On the other hand, you may have a virus, but you may not be ill. Okay. And the third thing is the sample you've gone for collection, but the sample has not been collected properly. 
The fourth thing is sample has been collected, but the wrong label has been put. So, and where there are human beings, there will be all these combinations which you will always see. It's not anybody's fault. Nobody's doing it purposefully. It's just that uh, they, they say whenever human activity is carried out, for every hundred actions, you have something like one or two errors. That is the reason why we're going for automation. Mm -hmm. So with automation in clinical medicine, especially in the clinical laboratory, we can bring down errors significantly and we read something. In a good laboratory, you can reach about four sigma. Whereas in a normal day-to-day -day activity, you will probably be a two sigma. So so uh, the clinical lab error is, uh, you know, within the analytical phase of the clinical lab, mm -hmm. the errors are very small. Mm -hmm. But where human beings are involved, the pre-analytical phase, the post-analytical phase, there are always errors. And this is where your struggle is going to be. So a false positive is when an individual does not have an illness and the test turns out to be positive. A false negative is when the person is ill, but for some reason, the test has turned out to be negative. Now, uh, the current uh, the current trend of COVID, uh, the Omicron, has got something called a S gene dropout. Okay, so uh, I mean, I want to take you along on this. So there are various genes which are present in the uh, in the virus, and due to multiple mutations, some PCRs may not be able to detect as efficiently the S gene as would be in the previous say Delta strain or something. So, as I said, there are multiple complex possibilities of either one, and one has to be extremely careful. It is, but remember, 99% of the time, this will not happen. Still, it is a 1%, that 1%. Or point one person which keeps you awake and you're not trying to struggle to figure out what happened. Yeah, still good odds. I'd back that horse 99%. Um, also, I wanted to ask you about the... I'm not quite sure how to phrase it, but about the timing of tests, because what we're finding now, lots of people queuing up for tests, but the test numbers, you know, still around the 300,000. So I wondered, is it, is it considered to be a complete test when the results come back? Is that something that you can explain us in terms of the timeline of the testing process and, and when we as the public might receive the information regarding the latest COVID numbers? So uh, when it comes to testing for COVID, I personally, I mean, looking at the literature, what I've read personally, uh, the virus may be positive a few days before you really fall in. Okay. And then the clinical illness strikes. According to DHA now, after about seven days of symptoms, you know, the virus is no longer transmissible. Okay. So, um, it's, it's a fairly complex scenario, and I'm wary of explaining it to the general public, primarily because I do not want it to be misunderstood. Uh, but uh, more importantly, it is uh, imperative that we should test. PCR is the gold standard. And irrespective of you know all what we talked about, we should still do a PCR and ensure that we you know, look after ourselves as well as our near and dear ones. Absolutely. Co-workers, etc. Um, also, Doctor, we're now able to get what the UK have been calling lateral flow tests now here in the UAE. Are you able to explain how they work and the kind of accuracy when we should be clear they're not suitable for crossing borders or leaving countries, that they really are an at-home indicator? But how do they work and what do we need to know about them? 
So lateral flow uh, uh, differs quite a lot from PCR. In PCR, you detect RNA or DNA of the virus, and that's the gold standard. On the other hand, uh, in a rapid antigen test kit, what you do is you uh, take a swab yourself, you dip it into a buffer, which is provided with the kit, and this buffer is then uh, dropped into a, uh, into a plastic uh, apparatus, which is you know like a small uh, a two-inch scale or something. Into uh, there's a hole for dropping, and you drop two or three drops depending upon the uh, kit into that particular funnel-like uh, aperture. Now the fluid containing the uh, antigen of the virus then is adsorbed onto a uh, membrane and this membrane uh, transpires or ensures that this this fluid goes along the membrane and reacts with antigens or antibodies which are embedded in the membrane and it gives you a simple color code now the advantage of antigen testing is it is very rapid it can be done in 15 minutes or 20 minutes the disadvantage is it is uh, often misleading because it may uh, be, uh, give you a false negative and more often because of its lower sensitivity. So sensitivity and specificity are two things which are, uh, you know, which, um, which enable a pathologist to decide which test to be used optimally in, in, for any scenario. And uh, this is where I think uh, antigen tests are slightly behind PCR kits. Having said that, it has a useful role. It enables, it gives you a lot of mental peace immediately, uh, sitting at home. And uh, uh, in case you're positive, you know how you can uh, you know, protect your near and dear ones mm -hmm. without you know, having to go out and expose yourself. But if it is negative, you've got to be careful. You should do a PCR. Assume nothing. I think that's a really interesting point in terms of the sensitivity because you know what we know about the lifespan of the virus in, in terms of how it manifests in the body but also in terms of the contagious level as well so do not rely on them folks but they are a very useful tool um can we talk about some of the new mobility sorry modalities that are being used for testing so genetic testing the cell-free dna testing what's uh what's kind of on the horizon or even in the lab right now that we might not be aware of dr palat I've been a pathologist for a long time now. And uh, when I started my uh, studies, we used to do things like blood glucose using small manual kits. And uh, today, uh, everything has changed. You know, we used to take you know, uh, kits, we had to boil it in water, and then you had to read the color, and it was quite fascinating. But it ensured that we had a very strong background of biochemistry, et cetera, et cetera. We understood our subject very well. Today, what happens is uh, everything is automated. You just take a serum sample, put it into a machine. The machine is uh, robotic. It takes few microliters. It tests everything rapidly. The scenario has totally changed. Within a few minutes, probably 15, 20, half an hour, you, know, you have an array of results which are available to you. So that's life-changing, actually, and life-saving. And uh, I think that is where uh, pathology is headed. Now, not only has automation and robotics changed pathology, but also things like digital pathology, um, DNA testing. DNA testing has really changed the way we do things. We have genetic testing for almost everything now. The human genome has been sequenced. 
we know pretty much all the diseases which pretty much not we, we really not everything but pretty much lot of diseases which we know we know the underlying cause, genetic cause uh, we are able to either do a pcr or a sequencing and you know clearly tell um, you know is um, are these two related to each other are these two people related to each other are these two uh, are, are, is a particular person having a predisposition for breast cancer for ovarian cancer uh, you know um, what what is the correct dose of the drug uh, which will perfectly uh, fit and tailor made and be tailor made to this individual so uh, many of these technologies are fairly new one very interesting technology at least for me personally is something called cell free dna testing so so, uh, so so can you explain traditionally how dna testing was done and what the difference is between that and cell free for those of us without four decades of experience so uh, initially when we used to do dna testing uh, we we used to try and extract the dna you know in a tube and uh, then uh, we used to do a reaction called dideoxy sequencing i mean i'm sorry it's kind of jargon but it's 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 fascinating it's, it's a fascinating technology people uh, the inventor got a nobel prize for it and uh, dideoxy sequencing is even now today the basis of dna sequencing the automation has come in a big way initially we used to sequence uh, 300 uh, or 400 uh, nucleotides at, a, at one go today we can sequence millions and billions of uh, nucleotides at one go so this is what automation is um there, there are some very interesting technologies you know which are currently available in the market um, to me out of out of them uh, one which has got a lot of future is something called nanopore sequencing where dna is passed through a tiny little pore and depending upon uh, the adenine guanine cytosine thymine the nucleotides you know uh, the changing electrostatic forces are used to read the genetic sequence so it's really beautiful technology that there are uh, things like illumina and sfii and all of them use various approaches to sequencing and today they say sequencing uh, has become uh, literally uh, available to most advanced laboratories across the world so uh, when it comes to Sorry, we're, we're Sorry. also seeing we're also seeing DNA testing that people can do at home, and I wondered what your thoughts on for companies like that for people that want to have, you know, a breakdown of their ancestry. And I, I don't maybe want to go down the medical route, but as you say, there's huge scope for personalized medication in the future based on on your DNA. How do you feel about those kits that people might have got over for Christmas, for example, because they have been very popular gifts? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, it's quite fascinating um, you uh, they send you a swab and the swab has been specially treated so that the dna doesn't degenerate and then you just put it in an envelope and send it off you know and it goes to the main lab so would you would you swipe you, is it you swipe the inside of your cheek or where where do you take your sample from inside of your cheek against the gum you kind of scrub it so that some cells come onto it and then you send it off to your uh, main lab somewhere in the us or wherever it is done and uh, then what happens is they come back to your to you with an entire genetic makeup how closely related you have some distant cousins how much percentage you have from india or how much percentage from africa or how many of how much percentage of you is caucasian uh, on a lighter vein i had a close friend of mine who's american and he uh, 
uh, he used to always say, I love Indian food. So I told him, why? He says, you know, I got my DNA testing done and I found 20% of my ancestry is Indian. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> but, but there have been some really interesting applications of these tests. We've seen them being used in solving crimes, you know, when there's been a, a sample of saliva on a napkin and when they've tested it and run it through, you know, your, your ancestry.coms, then there's been samples. and But there's also huge fallout as well in terms of people finding relatives that they might not be aware of. <laughs> so. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it has also been good in some ways because many criminals or alleged criminals who had been uh, incarcerated for crimes they didn't commit, you know, have been cleared of those crimes. That's absolutely so, right. When we think about when people were arrested and charged for crimes <clears throat> when the testing wasn't as sophisticated as it is now, it must be heartbreaking for, you know, police in this situation to think what could have been applied. And as you say, it's, it has been very successfully used when samples have been uncovered and, and tested in, in current times to to release people and also to charge people, you know, who've perhaps es- escaped historically as well. Um, let's bring it back to medicine. Um, can we talk a little bit about personalised medicine when it comes to some of these tests that um, are happening sometimes at home, but more often through through the labs and, and uh, through doctors here in the UAE? When we look at our DNA when we look at what our bodies may display in the future or have potential to display, what does that mean for the future of personalised medication, you know, the next generation? So, uh, more and more uh, medication is being discovered which are absolutely targeted. Depending upon the genetic makeup of the tumour, you know, it is possible to decide which drug would be the most efficacious. Best example is ALK4 gene in lung cancers. You know? And uh, another example is Hertenu uh, in uh, breast cancers. Mm. So there are many of these, uh, um, without going into too much detail, there are many of these markers which are, um, which are indicator of which drug would be most efficient in treating that particular disease. So uh, this is the future actually. And, uh, how we can uh, you know, get more of this knowledge more commonly available. UAE is relatively well developed, but many other parts of the world, this information is still you know, difficult to obtain. And uh, I guess once this becomes universal, then it can make a lot of difference to human life and health. Can I ask you what impact do you think the pandemic has had on the speed of which tests have been developed? and the impact you've seen on your life in the lab? Uh, so, I, I think the pandemic has had a number of changes and which holds um, good news for the future. So, before the pandemic started, as you rightly said in the beginning, nobody knew what PCR was. Today, everybody knows PCR. Every hospital now and ev- almost every good lab has got a PCR lab set up. So genetic medicine has now come here to stay. And more importantly, what used to cost 200 or $300 for a test is now available for a few dollars. Mm-hmm. So I think that is um, the, the, uh, the make, making available this particular uh, technology at an affordable rate is probably what this pandemic has done to us. Mm-hmm. So this pandemic will go away, it is a matter of time. 
but when it goes away suddenly you will have uh, pcr labs which are available for pcr testing and uh, now with more and more genetic information available more and more people are able to uh, you know develop tests which are targeted and these will become available easily and that is going to make a lot of difference in healthcare the best example would be blood glucose before the pandemic started blood glucose used to cost 50 dirhams today pcr cost 50 dirhams so and uh, so i think that is the most important change if you ask me as a pathologist I think that's a really wonderful note to end on, to be honest, Doctor. I think that the pandemic will have a positive legacy in terms of us as the public being open and confident and comfortable with testing. The accessibility piece, the affordability, and, you know, hopefully not having that diverse range of people that that have tests and that have not tested. Um, And also, as you say, that what you can see in the lab, the training of the staff, the technology that's now in place, not just in hospitals and clinics here in the UAE but even remote areas of the world that will hopefully protect us come the future. Uh, Dr. Palatmanan, thank you so much for joining us from Fakhi University. Really really appreciate your time, especially during this incredibly busy time in the time of testing. Um thank you to you and your team for all the hard work you've done um historically but especially over the last couple of years as well and uh wishing you all the very best for 2022. Thank you and best of luck to your team. More with Ion Health coming up on Dubai Eye 103.8.